0: The wind came back with triple fury and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in their shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls and their souls asking if he meant to measure their puny might against his. They seemed to be staring at the dark but their eyes were watching God. Zora Neale Hurston. In her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. In her novel, Zora Neale Hurston fictionalizes the 1928 hurricane in South Florida. The flood, that followed killed more than 2,500 people. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Allen, and we're looking at the relationship between climate change and weather. Is climate change affecting our weather? And if so, what can we expect of our weather in the future? Michael Allen is a climate scientist and professor of geography in the Department of Political Science and Geography at Old Dominion University. Michael, welcome to Delmarva today. Nice to be here. Well, I wanna thank you very much for uh, coming on. I, uh, I, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, Michael, we're talking about uh, climate change and, and weather but uh, let me begin with a, with a basic question. Where are
1: we currently on the global warming scale? So it's a, an interesting question. And when I'm talking about the issue of climate change, uh, that's one that often kind of rears its its head. And as, as we think about the last 150 years, so since the dawn of the industrial revolution, we've seen the same amount of warming that we observed in the preceding glaciation period. So the previous 10,000 years, we've increased our global land and sea surface temperature. So the thermometer as a whole across the entire planet has increased about the same rate. And so it's not um, a scale necessarily as much as the rate of change that we have, we have observed in the last 150 years. And uh, secondarily, moving forward, the, the, the pause with respect to climate scientists is that that trajectory is anticipated to increase more exponentially, meaning it's no longer a linear increase, but more of an exponential increase. And we can think about recent events with COVID and we've probably all grown familiar with more of this exponential curve. And we have a similar relationship with sea level rise and and temperature uh, around the world that this exponential uh, change is uh, projected to uh, increase its rate uh, moving forward. And so, if we think about 2020 as a year, uh, right, 2020 went down as the, the second warmest year on record as a whole across the globe. Now, if you look at that at a smaller scale, the United States, I believe we were the fifth uh, warmest year on record for, for the United States uh, as a whole. Um, but what was interesting about 2020, first, it was the second warmest as the, uh, the planet, but 2020 was also during a La Nina. And for for those of us that are not familiar with La Nina, La Nina is the opposite of El Nino, which we're probably more familiar with. And La Nina is a pattern of atmospheric ocean ocean, uh, interactions by which the equatorial Pacific is cooler than average. And I'm not going to get into the physics and the reasoning behind this, this process beyond the scope of this conversation. But as a result of La Nina, we should have been significantly cooler on average. And despite that, we had this, this very, very warm. And so since you know, 2012, we have the fivest warmest years on records. And, you know, you see maps and trajectories of, of the upward trajectory uh, recently, the national weather service and NOAA released the, the updated climatological norms. So we've transitioned from 1981 to 2010 to now a new climate period, a 30 year average. And so we think about weather and climate, Recognizing the differences between weather, right, weather's day-to-day variations, whereas climate is this long-term average, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, 10,000 years. So where are we on the scale is heat-trapping gases are certainly warming our atmosphere. The trajectory is certainly projected to continue to warm our planet due to that process. Um, but there is hope with respect to how we can address not only the consequences of climate change, but also uh, adapt and address the causes of climate change.
0: So what are, uh, what are our projections, Michael? I see, uh, I see where uh, an expected kind of uh, increase is uh, 1.3 degree rise, and, and then it gets worse. From there, right? it's just a, a moment on what are, we, what are we looking at going forward?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm leery of giving numbers uh, because then it's often, well, we didn't reach 1.4 or 1.5, but we are 1.3 and you are consequently wrong. Uh, in reality, what we have, the, the climate models show kind of a, a low-end trajectory and then a high-end trajectory based uh-huh. upon the decisions that we make as, as a, a human systems. And use usually analogy in class, it's like one of those little books that you read as a, a child, right? You got to pick the ending and you, you turn the page and the next page... The book was over and you go back and you can change the it's the same kind of idea we can kind of pick the path in which we follow uh in terms of the warming of our planet uh the co2 the methane gas the heat trapping gases in our atmosphere that we are releasing through a variety of processes not only uh transportation but your agricultural sector uh, we often think of factories but there's a lot more complexity and nuance associated with greenhouse gas emissions than the quote-unquote factories of pittsburgh in the 1950s right and so the, the warming of our planet is projected to increase as a consequence of that. It's, dare I say, basic physics. And so in terms of what may happen, most of that energy is going into the oceans. So you have a warming of the ocean. So you're modifying uh, where species move and migrate. Fish, for instance, in the Chesapeake Bay and, and the habitats that we rely upon in, in, the, in the watershed and the economy that is tied to the Chesapeake Bay and the uh, marine ecosystems that exist. We can think about the warming of larger bodies of water like the Atlantic or the Pacific and that being a component uh, to hurricane uh, vulnerability. So a warmer ocean leads to more evaporation excuse me, and that is an ingredient for the formation of tropical systems. Uh, and we've seen this recently with rapidly intensifying storms. That, that nomenclature really came after Hurricane Harvey Impacted Houston a couple of years ago, and then more recently with Florence and Dorian, in which these storms overnight nearly go from a cluster of storms to a major uh, catastrophic hurricane, and the ability to forecast those is certainly a challenge. Uh, moving forward with this rapid intensification and warming of our warming of our oceans, so where are we going? Is is again kind of basic physics in some way, but we can kind of pick and choose the path by which vulnerability, risk, and the, the consequences uh, that we may feel not only here locally, but also uh, as, a, as a planet more broadly.
0: Well, Michael, you've given, you've given us kind of a, uh, a general look at uh, climate change and weather, but uh, go a little bit deeper if you, if you don't mind. One of the ways in which we experience climate change clearly is through weather. We all, we all are impacted by uh, the changes in, in the weather. So what is weather and, and how is it
1: different from climate generally? Yeah, that's a really uh, important question and one that many listeners may not understand the, the full un, uh, concept of, of weather and climate. And, and Dr. Marshall Shepherd at the University of Georgia, he has a great series of TED Talks that I show in my classes And he talks about how weather is your mood and climate is your personality. Uh, Just because you're in a bad mood today does not mean that you're in a bad mood all of the time, right? Just because we have one hot day doesn't mean it's hot all the time in this particular location, right? That's static in time. And so when we think about weather, uh, it's the day-to-day, you know, heat wave, hurricane, blizzard, what have you. But when we think about climate, we can think about how heat waves, hurricanes, blizzards, what have you. Uh, have, has changed over time. And again, this 30-year this climatological average, or more, 150 years, for example, since the Industrial Revolution, or we can go back in terms of geologic time and look at how oscillations of our Earth system and our orbit around the sun, and uh, these things are called Milankovitch cycles, have changed and led to uh, previous uh, changes in our climate system. What we know is that over the last 150 years, we've seen this warming. And the the National Climate Assessment, which is authorized by Congress, uh, noted in 2019, that without accounting for the human factors, meaning these heat-trapping gases, that we are enhancing the greenhouse effect. Many people say, let's let's stop the greenhouse effect. And if we stop the greenhouse effect, we don't don't thrive as, as a species. We would be significantly cooler if we did not have the greenhouse effect. The the challenge is is we've enhanced that through our emissions of heat-trapping gases. CO2, the Keeling curve, often gets the most notoriety. Uh, CO2 remains in the atmosphere for for decades, so there's that challenge. But there's a lot of other greenhouse gases that are often much more potent. Uh, Methane gas, so we can think about the connection to the agricultural system. I was just reading a report uh, the other day that in the United States we have something in the order of uh, uh, the, the wells that are releasing uh, methane gas, the uncapped wells, the ones that are just leaking, the amount of methane coming off of those wells exceeds nearly 2 million cars on the roadways. So we can think about the, the intersections of, of addressing this in terms of, of infrastructure as, as, a, as another, another example. So I guess the, the point of the matter is, uh, we can use heat waves as an example, right? Heat waves is, is an example of weather. But on the long term, heat waves have become uh, earlier occurring. So we're recording this uh, today for your listeners. and many of us in Southeast Virginia and the Chesapeake Bay may set our all-time record high temperature today. This is significantly earlier than average in which we would see 90 degrees. We know that these heat waves have become longer lasting and consequently uh, more frequent. And so this this weather versus climate, it's important to recognize the differences between uh, the temporal and the spatial scale of weather and climate.
0: One of the things that just from the television that uh, captured my attention are um, the number of uh, violent storms and tornadoes that are coming up the uh, Ohio Valley and uh, that uh, that section of the United States, and then across through uh, Alabama, how, uh, how are those storms, those significant storms um, that uh, to me seem to be just battering the central portion, uh, southern, south-central portion of the United States, uh, are those connected to uh, climate change, or is there any way of um, projecting their connection to uh, global warming or to climate change?
1: Yeah, so uh, in, in, in climate studies, there's this, this term called attribution. And a lot of, of weather processes, so we think about hurricanes or heat waves or heavy rain events are much more easily uh, attributed to a warming of the climate. And so heat waves is the great ex- greatest example, right? We have an increase in frequency duration. Uh, and consequently, seasonality has shifted. Heavy rain events, there's this equation called the Clapeyron equation, meaning that for every degree uh, of, of warming, you have an increased probability. So atmosphere can hold more moisture, kind of like a sponge. And so if you can hold more moisture, if you increase that sponge, you're consequently increasing the probability of these heavy rain events, rain bombs in place. And so we've seen this recently with, with Florence and other hurricanes, and even storms that are not associated with, with tropical storm development. But when we talk about severe weather, it becomes a little bit more difficult to ascertain the role of, of climate change of a warming planet on those those processes. And there's a couple of that. I think first and foremost, um, the scale of tornadoes is significantly different than a hurricane or uh, significantly different than uh, even a heat wave, right? The, the, the physics is is much more complex. There's vorticity, there's instability in the atmosphere, moisture variability. So the the, the multifaceted characteristics of severe weather in of itself lead to a challenge in in those attribution studies. And then secondarily is is tornadoes, uh, in particular tornadoes. And I can go back and talk about severe weather in one second. But tornadoes, uh, the the increase in tornadoes that we have observed, and I just recently published a paper looking at Virginia tornadoes. And we've certainly seen an increase in Virginia tornadoes over the last um, 50 or 60 years. But some of that increase is not at all related to climate, but in reality, it's a function of population. More people, we can have more uh, visualization, our technology has improved. And so consequently, we can detect these tornadoes without having to be there through uh, radar, for instance. So when we talk about severe weather, there's something there, but uh, it's not nearly as, well understood due to the, the thermodynamics and the processes uh, that dictate severe weather compared to hurricanes or heavy rain or heat waves or cold spells, for instance. And I think the last thing I'll comment about the, the, the recent storms is we've kind of gone through a hiatus the last couple of years. We've been somewhat, I don't want to say spoiled because it has a negative connotation, um, but, you know, April is severe weather month. May is a hurricane, or, I'm sorry, tornado season, right? We, we expect these tornado outbreaks to occur in the transition season. And so even in Virginia, our, our, our deadly tornadoes have often occurred in, in the month of April and the superstorm uh, events in the 1970s. And even more recently in 2019 here in Virginia, you know, those are examples of how these storms, uh occur just because of the seasonal cycle of of incoming solar radiation so to answer your question more succinctly I, perhaps there's a lot of characteristics and variables that go into severe weather and so the the attribution of of climate change to those processes is probably a little bit more uh, difficult to, to describe
0: i can understand just uh, from my reading the relationship between the increase in rainfall and, and um, the absorption of water uh, in the atmosphere uh, occasioned by, uh, by warming and, uh, and global warming. Michael, this is almost a little kid's uh, question here, and, and I'm not even sure it, it might have an answer. So if I can understand where the water comes from in the hurricanes and so forth where does the wind come from and, and 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 what is the relationship of the wind for instance the turbulence of the tornadoes and the uh, and the violent uh, increased violence of uh, of hurricanes is there anything in global warming or or in climate change that impacts on um, the um, strength Uh, Of the wind.
1: Yeah, wind's a little bit more, again, complicated. And that's because it's so variable based upon local topography, uh, local land cover usage. And so to your point about when I talk about wind, very elementary is all wind is is movement of air from high pressure to low pressure. So it's basically kind of you think of moving wind downhill from the highest point to the lowest point. And so I joke with my students that if you're walking around campus, all you're seeing is the variability in pressure across the campus, right? That's why you feel the wind. So, so that's more of the elementary uh, answer to that question. But secondarily to the point of, of hurricanes and, and, and water vapor and, 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 and that framework, we know that warm water acts to evaporate. And so with, with hurricane development, the energy going to the ocean has certainly led to the the increased probability of these these storms developing. Right last year, uh, 2020, we had uh, the second most hurricanes on record after 2005. You may some of you may remember 2005. We had this major storm ca- called Katrina, in which I can't even talk about Katrina anymore because we have Harvey and Florence and Dorian and Floyd and uh, you know we have a variety of other major storms since 2005. So, so wind is, is that movement of, of energy, either in a horizontal direction or a vertical direction. But in terms of climate, again, that's a little bit more, uh, there's more to wind than, than just the, the warming of, of the atmosphere. So I would steer away from finding any relationship with that. Um, but certainly the, the evaporation aspect of hurricanes is where the attribution studies uh, reside. How do we build
0: resilience to, uh, to these weather um, extremes and uh, the, the, um, the impacts uh, to come of, uh, of uh, future, uh, future climate change? For instance, what are we gonna do uh, as the water rises here on Kent Island and uh, in, 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 and in Norfolk I know you've got a, a problem got both a subsidence problem as well as a water level problem how, how do we build resilience to uh, to these events?
1: So the the there's two ways of answering this first and foremost is, we certainly have to adapt to the consequences, right? As you noted, Hampton Roads, Southeast Virginia, Kent Island, Chesapeake Bay by and large, uh, we have this flooding issue and the state legislature loves the term uh, nuisance flooding. I don't know when flooding is not a nuisance, but that's neither here nor there. So we have to consider how do we uh, address transportation issues on Hampton Boulevard in Norfolk, which goes to the world's largest Navy base, how do we address real estate markets for some communities that the flood insurance rates are going up? I think one of the challenges with flood insurance rates is, is an example of, first of all, it's great to have flood insurance. Many other parts of the world do not have such, such safeguards. Uh, but then secondarily is uh, what's, the, what's the quote unquote true market value of your home? If your, your home is flooded reoccurrent, so two or three times and it's had to be replaced or elevated or what have you, you know, over the course of a mortgage, you're certainly not paying back in terms of flood insurance, that safeguard, the, the cost of rebuilding that home in the same place, on the same footprint as it was before. And so we have to think about uh, no longer planning from the past 20 years, but planning for the next 30 years. And so how do we, from a policy standpoint, for instance, consider the aspect of, of retreat? And nobody wants to talk about that because that opens a whole lot of can of worms here in Southeast Virginia, uh, in Norfolk, they're, they're, they're displacing a population in St. Paul's in the face of resilience. And when we think about resilience, we have to think about bouncing back and how you respond to adversity. Um, but I actually take a kind of a different approach and resilience is, is building resilience ahead of a stressor, ahead of. Uh, an impact, whether it be a hurricane or heat wave or what have you, rather than being reactionary. And I think many of us in the United States in particular are reactionary. If you look at the Dutch, go to the Netherlands, right? They have dikes and they've had dikes for, for centuries, preventing the, the, the waters from flooding Amsterdam and the, and the farmland. And they've, they've built these and they, they've constructed this hard uh, infrastructure for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, being proactive rather than reactive. So there are certainly challenges, and I know we've talked in the past about Tangier Island, how do we address those issues, or the outer banks is another ticking time bomb, not only in terms of sea level rise, but also we think about the infrastructure that exists in these communities, right? The septic tanks, the the transportation systems, Highway 12 in North Carolina regularly is washed away. And so what's the cost of rebuilding that uh, artery to the outer banks, and how do we make those decisions, both individually, collectively as a community, maybe as a state of North Carolina, how do you how do you make that decision? And I tell my students, I don't have answers. I have more questions because you're going out and changing the world. I'm here to tell you the consequences are potentially catastrophic with respect to sea level rise. We're talking about feet of sea level rise. Um, but we know the solutions to reduce heat-trapping gases and consequently build resilience uh, to future climate stressors.
0: Well, you had mentioned something about in an earlier conversation about uh, Texas power issues. What, do you, what are you referring to when you talk about uh, Texas power issues in terms of resilience?
1: Yeah, so uh, for listeners that aren't necessarily familiar, this is uh, February of 2021. Uh, there was a major cold air outbreak, a historic uh, cold air outbreak. And when we talk about climate change, we have to think, well, you know, we can't have cold weather. Well, again, weather versus climate. We still have cold weather. The frequency of that is just reduced. But that said, we had a major cold air outbreak in, in North America in, in February. And so cold that uh, parts of, of southern Texas actually received snowfall. They had pictures online and whatnot of, of the beaches in Galveston having snow. And there wasn't a lot of snow, but um, you know, here in Hampton Roads, if we have the threat of snow, everything closes down. So it's a similar reaction as you head south into communities that don't often uh, receive snowfall. So, but it was so cold that the, the, there was a a power grid failure and I'm not going to get into the reason for that. Some uh, elected officials claim that windmills froze, but we have windmills in other places that don't freeze. So that's not the reason Uh, other, other individuals claimed uh, that they, they shut down some of the, 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 Natural gas stations, again, your viewers and listeners can, can investigate those issues a little bit further if they're so inclined. But what we found is that we had a massive failure by the, the human system of addressing this cold air outbreak. And so parts of uh, friends and colleagues in Texas were without power for days in, in a place that is really not uh, prepared for cold weather in a place that uh, hasn't really had a history of cold weather in the last 20 or 30 years. And the, the, you know, people uh, died. Uh, The agricultural systems were adversely impacted as a result of this uh, freeze event. You know, the the flowers that were blooming, the buds that were bursting were were adversely impacted. So uh, water lines froze lots of intersectionalities with respect to uh, this cold air right? outbreak, this, this weather event, this historic weather event. But it also certainly drew attention to the human systems that help govern or should help build resilience to heat waves, cold waves, what have you. Uh, New York Times actually just published uh, the other day that the ticking time bomb with respect to uh, 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 climate uh, uh, issues is a massive power failure during a major heat event in the united states because it's not a matter of if but a matter of when if we had that in texas with a cold air outbreak certainly it's it's bound to happen we have recent examples of hurricane irma in florida but the 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 longevity of those outbreaks uh, of of power failures excuse me um, was has not been catastrophic yet and we hope we think about phoenix We think about uh, LA or New York City, Chicago, some of these places that have historic heat events, right? We're talking about 95, 100 degree, 110 degree days. If you don't have power for two, three, four, five, six days, forget your food in the fridge, but your your body responds accordingly. And if you're elderly or you have a chronic condition or you have cardiovascular disease or you're on, on blood thinner medicine, or you don't have the income to turn on the air conditioner, Right. These these intersectionalities of the human system become uh, much more, much more relevant.
0: Well, devastating, quite, uh, quite frankly. Are there moves uh, to begin to uh, protect the power grids around the United States, as an example?
1: You know, I'm not I'm not too engaged in, in those discourses, to be to be honest. I know there, there's a move. Towards decentralization in in some way of 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 these energy systems. Uh, when I was visiting Peru in the Uluru islands on Lake Titicaca, the the individuals that they live on these floating islands and they navigate the, the the lake, and they all had solar. And it wasn't designed for climate action. It wasn't designed to reduce heat trapping gases or anything of like that. It was it was a function of improving the well being of the residents on those islands, because prior to that. In order to cook food, they have to light a fire. And if you're on a Reed Island in the middle of Lake Tititaka, lighting a fire is not a good idea, right? So you had people dying and children dying of smoke inhalation and being adversely impacted from a health perspective. And so the government said, okay, let's invest and be proactive. And so consequently, we've improved uh, the wellness and quality of life. But we've also addressed this issue of of climate change. And so we see this in in parts of northwest Texas, the wind capital of the United States, a a very landscape that is still very pro-greenhouse gas emissions through the fossil fuel industry that really drives much of, of the state of Texas. But you have local communities investing in these solar panels and these wind turbines and the like. And so consequently, you're building this from the bottom up, but you also need this top-down investment, if you will, if you think about the issue of scale.
0: Well, Michael, I want to thank you very much for joining me today on Delmarva Today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Harold Wilson.